This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome to the Spring 2022 UCSB's Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter at John Greathouse. It's great to be back. It's been a couple years since we've filmed in person, and it's wonderful to have a full classroom um, and an incredible uh, interview for all of you. Our sponsor today is Invoca. Invoca is an AI-powered call tracking and analytics platform that helps marketers make informed decisions based on, the, uh, excuse me, based on the data generated before and during a phone call. The company has achieved unicorn status recently. They're um, valued at over a billion dollars, and they're one of the top employers, according to Glassdoor. The good news is they're hiring. So if you have a business where you record calls with your customers and you want to pull that data out of those phone calls, you should be talking to Invoca. And if you're looking for a career change with an exciting company that's growing, you should reach out to Invoca as well. And we thank them very much for sponsoring us tonight. Tonight, I'm speaking with Tony Redoni. Tony is a former global sales leader at Salesforce. During his nearly 16-year tenure, he played a significant role in the company's strategic direction, overall vision, and go-to-market strategy, and especially in the small to medium-sized business sector. Tony's prior executive roles include VP of Sales and Marketing at Itemfield, which is a data integration company, as well as VP, <clears throat> excuse me, VP of Marketing and VP of Sales at Support.com. Tony holds a BS degree from a little-known school on the ocean called UC Santa Barbara. He earned his engineering degree here in computer science, and he also earned his MBA from Santa Clara University. Now, Tony is a sales leader who, has, who, went, who took his technical talents, and he helped change the software-as-a-service world. He was part of that revolution that took software from disk to being in the cloud. But I think more importantly, Tony is one of those people that's been successful in his professional life as well as his personal life. I'm fortunate enough to know his son. His son is a wonderful young man who's carving out his own career right now. So Tony has, is a winner professionally and personally, and that's, in my book, that's true success, to win both in, in both sides of life. And I, he's also good, uh, solid proof that you can be a nice person and still be very successful in rough and tumble Silicon Valley. Let's welcome Tony to our class. Good to see you. Thank you, John. Great. Thanks, everybody. Wow, it's so nice to be in person. So um, great to see you all here. And I appreciate you making this work. No problem, John. So I want to start with uh, something from your youth. I understand that you had a paper route when you were uh, a child, and yep. the wonderful person that was managing you set up an incentive system that incentivized you to not deliver 70% of your newspapers. That's correct. So I want to hear about what the heck they did to make that happen, and then what, what learnings did you take from that? I know you, you set comp plans for thousands of salespeople yeah. over the years. Yep. So th um, think of Invoca just gave a presentation, and thanks for that question, John. Um, when, you, when you think of jobs you get, like most jobs are salaried. Uh, and if the company has a profit, you get some percentage of profit. And then you hire these salespeople and you say, well, we're going to give you a little money, but we're only going to pay you uh, for bringing in sales for the company for the rest. And in a way, I had a paper route that was similar. I don't even know. Paper routes don't exist anymore. Uh, so you didn't go through this. <laughs> I should have but explained I, what that is. So I had, I had 
two different paper routes as a, as a seventh, eighth grader, somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, one was for the San Francisco Chronicle. And they would give me 50 houses, and I'd deliver 50 papers. And at the end of the month, I would go, go to every door and knock on the door. There's no Venmo then. Uh, they'd give me money, and then I'd have to go give back 75% of it or whatever it was to the paper company. Uh, and hopefully the people gave me a tip for uh, delivering door-to-door. And then there was this other paper that was a free paper called The Progress. And The Progress didn't make their money from subscriptions. They made it from ads. And so the business model is different. Mm-hmm. And they gave me 100 papers across whatever, 100 houses to deliver, and said, you go collect at the end of the month, but the paper's free. You're just asking for donations. And whatever they give you, you can keep. You don't owe us anything. Mm-hmm. So it only took me... I don't know, two or three months to know which 20 houses paid and which 80 houses didn't. So by that, but, and this was a twice-week paper, so I'd get the stack of 100 papers, and I would take 80 of them and go over to this dead-end street and throw it over the fence. Yeah. And then I'd take don't 20, wrap them up, uh, and go deliver them to those houses. And I think that lasted for, uh, for maybe two months, three months, until there was a really windy day, and that... Those papers all flew all over the high school campus nearby, and the high school saw they were all from the one paper and called the paper, and about an hour later, I was fired as a paper, paper boy. But what I'd say, uh, you think about, like in, in, you, like, in my job, I set comp plans. Like, what are we going to pay people for? And I always think there's unintended consequences to anything you try to do. There's, a, there's an unintended thing, and, you, and that's an example of me when I was younger, yep. um, but when... You're starting a company and you're trying to figure out what do I want? Somebody, do I want them to? Do I want to sign up a new customer? Here's a good example. Uh, whatever you close on your fir- on this first deal, you get. But anything that closes on the second deal, we're going to give to a different team because mm-hmm. you're the hunter that closes the yes, deal. Not the farmer. So yeah, not the farmer. So if you do that, what does the hunter do? The hunter never tries to just close something small with a customer and let them buy more later on. They try to delay it and get them to buy the yep. big kahuna now. Yep. So, I don't know, it was a fun way when I was younger of realizing like, there's an unintended consequence. The newspaper wasn't trying to get me not to deliver those papers. Right. Uh, and Well, I think it's, in my mind, I mean, I have less experience running sales teams, but I have run some sales teams, yeah. far less experience than you have. Um, it's, what I always try to do was just align my interest with the salesperson as much as I could. Just not Completely. being that smart, just saying, well, look, if they're aligned with me, then we're probably going to both be happy. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not always easy to do that, but um, a, a big part of that is thinking of what are the potential unintended consequences of the, of the comp plan that I'm setting yep. up. And there will be ones that happen that you don't even anticipate totally. anyway, and you just decide. And you have to change them. Yeah. <laughs> you have to apologize and go, you know, that's not working. Yeah. I'm curious, were your parents entrepreneurial? Were they salespeople? Like, was this a world that was not foreign to you or foreign to you? When oh, completely foreign. My mom was a beautician. My dad was a plumber. Uh-huh. Uh, my grandfather, one of my grandfathers was a uh, salesperson. Uh-huh. And one of my uncles was a programmer for IBM. And I got a job out of school as a developer. Uh, not unlike Caitlin and Kristen just talking a few minutes ago. Um, so I don't know. I wasn't born and bred for sales at all. Um, it just happened in my first job. I was on a team with five or six people. And the team lead said to me one day, Tony, from now on, you're in charge of talking to the customer. And I was very uncomfortable with that. And I said, Carl, what, are you hazing me? Why are you making me do this? And he said, Tony, you're an extroverted engineer. <laughs> and we've never had one. Like, ever. And he told a funny joke. Uh, and, he, and I realized I was an okay, I was a capable programmer. I don't mean, I don't want to diminish it, and I'm not amazing, but 
programming is really helping understand what somebody's problem is and how you and interpreting it and then building a spec and yeah. then writing the code to it and right. I was really good at doing the first half of it and okay at doing the second half and that that process got me to realize look my superpower on this team is going to be uh, interpreting what people want and they're they don't want to talk to people and I can do it okay I'm I'm happy to do that job and that gradually moved to more customer facing stuff that became sales but if if I was in a class like this my junior year and you said somebody up here said you know 10 of you are going to be in sales I would have bet my life I wouldn't be one of them but my which life. is interesting because I I've met you relatively recently yeah. and you and I hit it off I mean I'm a salesperson at heart and I felt like my whole life that's really what I did even though I had all these other titles I was just listening and solving problems right yep. which is what sales is yeah, I um, look. There's no degree in sales. <laughs> Maybe if there was that, I would have understood. Yeah, it's just starting, right? Some schools actually uh, are starting to put it together. But I think when I was graduating, it was more of a stigma. Like I, I'm not going to be the Cutco knife salesperson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing against anybody who sold Cutco knives. Yeah. We need knives. Um, but that that wasn't my, me. And but what was me was when I was first, as I started moving out of engineering more closer to marketing these other jobs was you know I was a programmer talking to programmers about tools they'd use to do development and, and like I knew that stuff inside and out like I, I wasn't going to go sell you uh, sell ice to an Eskimo right. or whatever the metaphor is yep. uh, I wasn't going to sell a pen to somebody who already had a pen it was okay you're a developer I'm a developer how what questions do you have and how do I become uh, trusted with you to help you make uh, understand what criteria you're going to make a decision by and make it easy yeah. for you to make a decision. Right. So it's basically I, solving problems. Yeah, but I would say, like, I and I really see this in B two B sales probably more than traditional consumer sales. Is I like to think, uh, and I'm, I'm exaggerating it to make myself feel better about this career choice, perhaps. We all do that. Um, but I like to think of it's like really I'm, I'm meant to be a doctor. Like you know, what's it like when you go to your doctor? You've got a problem. They ask you a bunch of questions. What have you done? How long have you had it? Hopefully they listen. They listen. They have some bedside manner, and they ask, well, how's it impacting your life? Yep. How do you want it fixed? And they'll give a different answer if you're a professional athlete than if you're a weekend warrior than whatnot. And over time, it felt like, wow, really, in the B2B sense, you're sort of, you're a doc, you can be a doctor if you want. Mm. And that, that got me, that fit my wheelhouse. I've never heard that analogy. Really, I, mean, I like I, it. I'm not a doctor, but that, <laughs> that concept of like, I'd aspire to be a doctor, not the person selling a pen to somebody that already has a pocket full of pens. So I'm going to steal that and use it in my sales class. Yeah, yeah. And I'll probably think I made it up. That's okay. Over I, time, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll convince myself. I, I, I do tell one story. It's like, uh, like, what you just did is actually perfect for somebody in sales, or not in engineering. John is going to steal something that I just said and make it his own. Now, if Caitlin does that as a developer, or I did it when I was a developer, that's called stealing intellectual property, <laughs> and you're arrested for it, basically. Um, and if you do it as a salesperson, it's called sharing best practices, and you can make more money. That's right. And I got really good moving into sales. of like, oh, that's what they do? Well, I, I can do that. No, what I thought you were going to say is something a little bit different. I thought what you were going to say is what John just did was an influence and persuasion technique, and I didn't do it on purpose, yeah. which is... Oh, I'm going to use that. So I meant it. Yeah. But, you know, that is an influence and persuasion technique of validating your idea and saying to you, 
you know, Tony, that's such a good idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that idea in the future. The difference is I really meant it. <laughs> but that's what I thought Thanks. you were going to say. Um, no, that's yeah, salespeople a, are sincere, John. Well, I know. Well, that, another reason why I wanted to have you up here, and I, in, in the introduction I made the point that, you know, you're, you're a wonderful guy. You have a wonderful family. Um, you've succeeded in, in, you know, all aspects of life. But I also wanted you to come up here because I don't have that many people from sales um, over, over the years. Yep. Um, and there is a stereotype, right, of, you know, just the, they don't really care. They just want the commission. And, and I, I know that having worked with a lot of salespeople, that is a, that is a, um, it's a stereotype. But it's not necessarily true of successful salespeople, people that are successful over decades like you've been. Yep. You're, you're successful because people trust you, and they trust you because you don't screw them over and you don't sell them a bill of goods. You sell them solutions. And so I think when students think about sales and you think about a potential career in sales, think about it that way. You're really just helping people solve problems. And the other plug I'll put in for um, sales skills is even if you don't want to work in sales, having those skills are their life skills. Yep. You know, just being able to communicate effectively, being able to listen effectively, and then work with yeah. based on what, like you said, the doctor analogy. Yeah. There's a great book by Daniel Pink. Have you heard of him, uh, an author? Yep. Called To Sell is Human. Mm. Uh, and he talks like in every job, you've got to influence and advocate for your ideas. Right. But I, I, I would say... Like, I, I love your point. Like, sales is a career, and if you're going to do it for a long time, you're not going to succeed if you're just uh, kind of no. in, it, in it for yourself. People but, figure it out. But there's people in that. But what I'd say on my, a little bit on my journey is after I was in engineering and then marketing, and uh, I had this vision in my mind that I'm going to be a CEO. <laughs> no. And most CEOs come out of engineering or sales. So I thought, I'm going to try sales for a little while. And I went to sales to just check the box, and it just grabbed me. It was like it that in a way, you're, sometimes your job or your career is going to find you. Do you know? Uh, so you don't know what paper routes were, but you, do you remember the beginning of Harry Potter when he's trying to decide when they're trying to decide what house you go into, and they put on the magic hat, and the kid Harry Potter's like, I want to be in this. Which house do you want to be in? Gryffindor. Gryffindor. I want to be in Gryffindor. Do you guys remember what the hat said? Slytherin, and then the hat said, no, no, you don't choose the house. The house chooses you. And one of the things I'd say as you go on your career journey is, like, of course it's important to have a plan, but the, the plan's going to change, and the career is going to choose you. I didn't go out and choose sales. Right. Or, you know, some, and by the way, I never became a CEO. I was like, so, this is awesome. I love this job found me. So I never wanted to be a CEO. So what, why, what was it about being a CEO that you thought you wanted to do? Was it just yeah. because they were the leader or the? Um, I think a little bit is like, hey, aspiration. Like, I'm, yeah. well, what's the top? That's yeah. what I want to yeah. be. Combined with one of my skills was kind of multidimensional. I, I understood R&D, sales, marketing, and there just weren't, uh, that, that was unique. Um, and right. I had a lot of people right. encouraging me to do that. Um, and then I'd say, I, you know, I've worked this close to CEOs for a few years, and I saw the things that just, that I was like, oh, I'm not, I'd be terrible at that. I know, me too. Some of this was like me self-assessment. Like, you end up in the things, what, that you you like, you're good at, and you have fun. And I don't mean you always like it, and you're always good at it, and you always have fun, but right. you gravitate towards those things. And um I, I, it would have had to be exactly the right thing that found me, and it didn't find me. 
So it's interesting that I'm learning about you, and you and I are even more alike than I thought because I came from finance into sales. Yeah. And so I was in the finance world and, and a very young person at one of the big eight back then, a big accounting firm, and they were like, dude, you can sell. Like, you should be selling more business. And they literally had me out there 22, 23 years old selling new business, you know, going to yeah. clients and saying, hey, have you thought about this service? Um, and none of the other 20, I should say none, very few of the other 22 or three-year-olds were doing that. Yep. And so for me, it was kind of... Of, I was not cut out to do finance. I, was, I can't even check. I can't even balance a checkbook. Like I'm not, that's not my so skill set. You're an auditor for somebody. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> that I think the statute of limitations has passed. Uh, I'm sure I made so many mistakes. It was brutal. But but they put me into that sales role pretty early on, yep. which I really thank them for. Yeah. They did me a great service there. I mean, are there any accounting majors or BusyCon here? Accounting's Apple, great. Right? It's, the, it's so the, the language the, of business. Yeah, I mean, the accounting path into the big, what yep. are they now, four? How uh, many accounting? Big one. Um, so you go and you become an auditor or whatever that path is, but they're, they're, the path to get to partner, those partners, oh, brutal. those are called salespeople. Yeah. They're just, they, they don't have salesperson on their card, so they're a little more, they're more like doctor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what should we do to fix our... Uh, best financial best practices. They're oh. Usually not the best accountants either. No. <laughs> but they're, but they, no uh, offense, partners no, out there. I mean, sorry. What I mean about this is you're, I, I would hire you when, if you're good at something. Like I, I want to know what you're going to be the expert at out of school. Like you're, you might be a programmer or an accountant or a user interface person. But what is going to get you promoted or get you successful in your career is not just having that expertise, but working with a bunch of others to help make that successful. And a lot of that's going to be the, the language you learn selling, whether it's internally or externally. Totally. Yeah. You need to be able to sit in a small group setting and get your point across yeah. and persuade. I mean, so if you want to call it sales, call it sales. I, so I, I, I heard a rumor. So I did some research on Tony. This is the advantage of knowing a lot of people that Tony knows. So I heard a, a rumor that Tony has a secret that you, that you can share with the students that will achieve a 25% increase in their GPA with zero additional investment of time. So should we charge people for this? No, it's free. I feel like we should charge. Nah. Okay. No, All right, go ahead. So here's why I can't charge, because 80% <laughs> of the people won't do it. <laughs> so no, this class, 100% will do it. Yeah. 80% watching uh, won't. So, um, you like this? Like, just do one or two things and have, like, have every B become an A minus. Um, I'll give you two simple things, and I want to out the ten percent of the people in the class that already do this because you're kind of screwed now. Everybody's going to know your secret. So, um, and these aren't just in school. Uh, I kind of figured this out my senior year in college here at UCSB, um, uh, but it also really plays into your career. So, you walk into a room. Where do you sit? Where you sit tells me a lot about how engaged you are. Um, and, and it's okay. I, like, I don't know you personally, but my guess is if you're in the back, you're kind of in a safe spot. And if you're front, you're okay, it'd be a little more uncomfortable. If you're back, you can probably play on your phone. In the front, I might be looking at you. It might be harder to play on your phone. Um, and I learned this because I was in a class with just eight people in my senior year, and I always loved sitting in the back row. Uh, and there was no back row. It was like we all, we all had to sit in the first spot. And I found that I couldn't hide. Uh, yep. And I got, and I didn't like the class more than any of my other classes, uh, but I got a great grade because I had to be 100% present all the time. So when there's a training in your job or you're in a class, make yourself uncomfortable and sit in the front. So that's, and look, I mean, that's, there's, that's no more time. The second thing I'd say is whenever, uh, and I felt this a little bit in school and a lot in my career, 
Uh, we need a volunteer who wants to come up and give a brief presentation on, the, on what they heard from Christina and Caitlin. Anybody want to come up? And right, everybody's head just boom. Yeah, eye contact. Yep. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm that way too, or was that way. Now, uh, and what happens? Once the first person comes up, what do you realize? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it wasn't that hard. Oh, they were all right. Oh, no big deal. They did fine. That, uh, and then, do any have any other volunteers? And then there's a big line. Yep. And then nobody remembers who in second. So whenever there's an opportunity to volunteer, no matter how uncomfortable you are, just volunteer first. Uh, you'll be, you, you, but I trust you, you will not succeed every time at whatever you're asked to do. But you'll just get comfortable being a little more uncomfortable. And the truth is, nobody cares about how you did but you. And you need to get over it. Um, but you'll start getting more comfortable with this process of like, oh, yeah, and I'm now I'm engaged. And now I'm thinking about what would I say if I went up? Uh, how, would I, how would I summarize, yep. you know, Caitlin and Kristen's, uh, the job at Invoca and what Invoca does? Uh, it really kind of puts you on the spot, and it keeps you more engaged all the time. Totally. So I was that 10% nerd that sat in the front. Uh, and my, my girlfriend and now wife of, you know, 400 years used to make fun of me. She's like, you're such a nerd. Like, you're yeah. always... <laughs> I, I took over a new role at Salesforce uh, in an area called customer experience. My, my true confession is I didn't even know what that meant when I was voluntold or jumped into this, volunteered for this job. And uh, so I went to a conference. I brought four execs that worked for me. And we walked, this room had like a thousand seats in a ballroom in New York City. I'm like, hey, everybody come with me. And we went and we sat in the front row in the first four seats. And they were so mad at me. <laughs> uh, and we pulled out our laptops. Blah, 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 and we did for four days. We sat in the front. And when we left at the end of the week, they all said, uh, I can't believe I always sat in the back. Why did I do that? First time so I ever got one. anything out of it, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So Simple, so easy one, right? Your next class, I want to see yeah. all of you. In no, I, what I say seat. is you don't know. Only maybe another 10% will take that advice. But you're missing out. So UCSB, uh, I'm going to show, uh, after, after our interview, I'm going to show the class a photo of your rejection wall. Um, so when you were at UCSB, you and your roommates plastered a wall, literally an entire wall of, with rejection letters from school, I mean from jobs, excuse me, while you were in school. So obviously in sales, rejection is something you just have to, it's part of, it comes with the territory. What's, what suggestions or what skills did you develop? What coping mechanisms did you develop over time to deal with the inevitable setback in your career or just the, the day-to-day rejection from prospects? Yeah. God, nobody likes to be rejected, Right. Uh, so did they still do that? Is it, what, what's the, is it called the Student Resource Center? What's the area you do? Career interview? Center. Career Center. So when I was here at UCSB, uh, when, what, what would have been this quarter in 1986. And I basically signed up for every interview that was interviewing any computer science students. And then you go there, you have, do you guys do this still, right? Interviews. And then I get a letter back the next week. Form letter, thank you. No, no job for you. No, Tony. Uh, so we started making fun of it and we, basically plastered the whole wall along our, uh, our apartment on it. Um, and I'd say, I, you're going to have setbacks in everything you do. And I actually think, if you don't have any, I might not be interested in wanting to hire you. Um, but you still have to build mechanisms for it. I'm, look, you're asking me this like I know it. It still sucks when somebody's beating me up. Um, but I now have better skills at going, oh, wait, they're beating me up. It's not personal. Right. Tony, get over it. Like, why is your ego getting in the way of this? Um, but 
uh, it took me a long time to develop that, and it still takes a couple seconds for it to kick in if I'm getting rejected or beat up. And I'm like, well, wait, this is about me and not yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I tell you an uh, interesting story about this? Sure. And I, it'll, it'll include a book reference. Um, I, I have a great CEO and founder I've worked for, a guy named Mark, uh, but he can really, like, light you up in a room. Uh, and it's sometimes it's, like, infamous among its execs. Like, and when you see him doing it to somebody, you're like, ah, oh, thank God it's not me. <laughs> and when it's happening to you, you feel like you're just getting, you know, filleted with a knife. Um, and one time we were in a room doing it, and somebody made a comment to him, like, what? Come on, why are you doing, why are you doing that? And he made the greatest side comment to us. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. You guys are taking this personally. You need to read the four agreements. Mm. And there's this new age book called the four agreements. And I'll tell you, and, it, and it's very new agey. And as an engineer, I was like, oh, what a bunch of crap. Uh, and I go read it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like life, life uh, skills I need. Uh, and it's like, there's four things you need to do for some for version of fulfillment or things you need to know. Uh, one is be impeccable with your word. Like, tell the truth. Mm. If somebody says, like, what'd you think of my presentation? Don't just say, oh, that was great, right. if you don't mean it. So be, be, be a truth teller. Second one was um, uh, don't make assumptions. Think about, like, when, when I'm getting rejected, isn't part of the pain I'm getting, like I'm making assumptions, so oh, they don't want me. Mm -hmm. As opposed to maybe they already have somebody like me. Or... They came to UCSB and they decided they're not hiring anybody. Like, yep. Why am I yep. making these assumptions? The, uh, the third one was don't take anything personally. Oh, my God, my That's whole hard. life I take everything personally. That's <laughs> yes, but just knowing that it's there, you're like, just, oh, yeah. And, and the way they wrote it in the book, if I remember right, was more like it's a, re it's a reflection of the person who's beating you up or attacking or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever you're saying you're taking personally yeah. Yeah. is a reflection of them and not you. Yeah. Um, and then the last one was always do your best. And if you can do those things, like I think of this as an exec, uh, when I'm in front of my boss telling him, like, I'm not going to hit my number, we screwed up on this, we lost to this, and uh, we're going to have to tell Wall Street we're going to miss in this segment. Yeah. Like, if I've done those things, fire me, man. There's nothing else. There's nothing else I can do. I've, yeah. I've done those areas. Yeah. So um, I, that, that's a bigger answer than the question you asked. Um, but in your career, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Rejection is a piece of it. And what I do to new sales teams or people that I learned from a trainer was just tell somebody, look, you're, you're going to be terrible when you start. Go out and get 100 no's. Uh, because in do, getting those 100 no's, you're going to learn a few things about how to get better at it. Um, and you're going to learn not to take it personally. Yep, yep. But when you only do one, you take it really personally. Oh, of course. So you just need, a, you need to get, go through it a lot. Dude, I was the worst. So I, I was that passionate entrepreneur. I always, you know, was there very small companies growing. And it was a strength. And oftentimes your strengths are your biggest weaknesses yeah, like course. like i would you know really connect with people and we would be in it together and i'd be really passionate but that same personality trait would cause me to you know wear my emotions on my sleeve yeah. and go well what do you mean you don't want to buy it and, you know just so it took me i don't know in fact i wouldn't say i'm still not there but it took me a long time before I was able yeah. to really be less passionate and realize, look, it's not about you, dude. It's like they've got a lot of things going on in their yeah. head besides I've worked with a, a great sales trainer, and the first thing he teaches us to say to a prospect is, hey, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a description of what we do or think, and, and I want to understand your problems. But the first thing I want to let you know is a no is okay. Mm. I can, we get no's all the time. And there's, for some people, when they need it. And if you need it, great. And if not, yep. I want to give you permission. And 
the hardest part for salespeople is when they hear no, they're like, but then I started really selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead yeah. I'm like, okay, you said no. Yeah. I'm, and I'm like, should I try a little harder? Well, I always felt like you build more trust with them. Uh, because you can you, go back, right? Yeah, of so course. I always I tell my students, this, like, if you've done a good job of qualifying that prospect, now if you're just calling people out of the phone book, then you know, this doesn't apply. Yep. But if you've done a good job of prospecting and you know that your solution could be a good fit for them at some point, then a no could just be not now. Of course. And just take it as that. Go, Tony, you know what? I'm going to yep. call you in six months because yeah. I think you need to, you need to, there's some changes yeah. in your organization that are going to happen and I think I'll be, I'll be here for you. Do you want to, can we role play for a second? Oh God. Okay. Like this? He wants to embarrass so, me. No, no. Am so, I the prospect no, or am no, I the salesperson? No, I mean, I, I mean, that goes far no. role play with time. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> is with, with, uh, so no, th- does that mean not now? Because when mm. somebody says no, they often mean not now, right. but sometimes they mean no, never. Yeah. So what I, what I would like and appreciate from you, John, isn't to say come back in three months or six months, but let me know if it's not now, what's different about the future mm-hmm. that would make it now, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just leave me alone, Tony, you're a limpet, like attached to me and I just want you to leave me alone. Yeah. Um, or is it no, never, no, no, never is okay too. Totally. You know? like, but the worst thing, like part of this truth telling is don't say somebody not now when you mean never. Yeah. Yeah, the slow maybe is the worst. Yeah. Like, just say no. And I'm, I'm actually fundraising now for a couple of companies. It's like, just say no. It's like, yeah. that's totally cool. Like, we're still friends. Yep. I need to go on to the next person that wants to write a check. And so telling me maybe doesn't really help me much. Yeah, exactly. Let, let's take the first student's question. Hi, Tony. Uh, my name is Sean. Um, so my question kind of takes away from what we had been talking about, but it's more about your career. Um, I was more curious because you said you had an MBA. I was curious uh, at what point in your career you felt it was necessary to get your MBA and then what impact it had on your career. All right. Thank you, Sean. Uh, I'm going to do a little role play like I do at work, too, when this happens. Nice. Sean, come on up here. (laughs) Let's give Sean a hand. All right. Thank you, Sean. So I want to say this, like, look, being, a, being somebody who volunteers to do this, I want you to get some reward. This is uncomfortable, but it'll be good. Um, so Sean, what, Sean asked a question, should, should we get an MBA or not? So let me ask this, Sean. I have two questions for you. Why do you ask first? And second, what do you think? Um, first, I was asking because a lot of professionals, especially in, like, finance, for example, yep. they go on to get an MBA, or if they want to be, like, in C-suite, they'll get an MBA. Um, and what, what was the second part? Sorry. Well, I, what, what do you think the answer is? Um, I would think. Like, what's your what's your gut? I, I'm feeling like you 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 decided to get your MBA after you've been in business for a while, and you felt like it was going to be the next step in your career to getting towards your goal, which at the time maybe was C-suite. Yep. What do you what what uh, folks here have any comments? What uh, point of view? What would you change to Sean's answer? Any volunteers? Go ahead. To make more money. To, to, uh, to get an MBA to make more money? For sure. I mean, it can make a, a, a small difference, for sure. Um, Sean, uh, one other person? To, yeah. Right. We got two right here. Go ahead. To increase your opportunity. And to increase your opportunity. Right on. So, first of all, let's give Sean. I'm going to stop just for a quick sec. Sean, you're staying up here. Sorry, just for a sec. <laughs> I know. I don't want to get you comfortable being uncomfortable. So, um, let me ask this. How many MBAs does Mark Zuckerberg have? I have no idea. How many undergrad degrees does Mark Zuckerberg have? Zero. Okay. Um, I work for a billionaire named Mark Benioff. How many MBAs does Mark Benioff have? I would say zero. Zero. 
uh, USC computer science degree. Um, so uh, I, the reason I, so I'm not saying it's not worth it. Like I've got one, um, but it's not necessary or mandatory. So don't and and if if you do it, do it because you've got a passion that you want it. There's a few cases that I'd, I'd say an MBA is going to be necessary. If you want to go to be in a top Wall Street investment bank, yeah. you pretty much have to go to one of the top three or four MBA schools. Um, and that's because you want to pivot to that as a career. Like if I knew, boy, I, I want to be an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, I guess I'm going to try to get in Stanford and Harvard. And if I'm lucky enough to get in, I'll write the golden ticket and I'll get to work 22 hours a day for one of those companies for a bunch of years. Uh, if I want to be a venture capitalist, historically a lot of the top MBAs in the U.S. But they're getting so much grief right now for the lack of diversity that that requirement is starting to go away. Yeah. So I'd say it's waning a little bit. Um, uh, let me add a little bit of my particular story. I was such a nerd in college. I, I, no busy con classes, none of that. I was a programmer trying to fake my way in product marketing, with, meeting with CFOs and others that I didn't know the language. And I knew that if I just, you know, there was no Khan Academy or YouTube, and I didn't know how to get the language, so I started taking a few classes at night, and then the type A in me were like, if I do these, I can apply to grad school. And then it turned out I was at this growing company at the time that uh, had a layoff, and they, I didn't get laid off, but my boss was worried I was going to leave, so he um, offered to augment the uh, stipend for grad school and like pay for all of it if I stayed. So I had a bunch of little individual things that like it, it I want to say it worked for me, Sean. It helped me a lot, but I'm really careful not to say you should go get an MBA. Yeah. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Give Sean a hand. All right. That's going to be a tough act to follow, but we'll go ahead and take another yep. student's question. Um, Tony, as a former global sales leader, when your team does not reach the sales quota, like how would you do or how would you monitor to make sure that they will meet their next qu sales quota yeah. or the um, short-term short goals? Yeah. Thank you, Ashley. Did everybody hear the question? As a sales leader, what do I do when we don't hit our quota? That never okay. happens. Ashley, come on up. <laughs> this will be the last one. Give her a hand. All right, let's give Ashley a hand. And uh, while she's coming up, I'll give a tip. And people interviewing for jobs after graduation yet? Better be. Coming up soon. Uh, most important advice I can give you, ask good questions. Don't ask, like, how many vacation days do we have or who's your biggest competitor. Show you did a little bit of work and ask a question that can be... What's your dental plan? Yeah. No, no, I doubt uh, that. Yeah. that for people. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Now, look, I mean, you can get help. I, email me. I'll help you. My son was applying to work for a chip maker uh, after college, and... Uh, there was an article about some acquisition they did, so we helped craft an acquisition article. And he said, yeah, Dad, I asked the guy, and the guy's like, that's way above my pay grade. I, was, I, don't, I have no idea what the answer to that is. But what they think of is, wow, that was a good question. Right. And I want to say this because Ashley asked a great question. She was asking me what happens when I don't hit my quota. And I will tell you that for all I said about don't take anything personally and all the BS 10 minutes ago, my stomach already hurts when I think about missing quota. It, it, it sucks. So well, let me ask, why did you ask that question? Um, basically, I asked this question because I'm curious about, like, how would you, um, how, how do you, like, commonly communicate with your team, mem like, team members or, like, how do you um, 
personally tell them like each individual like how they did or like yeah how they how they each did yeah. okay and then let me ask the same question i asked the others what do you think the answer is this is hard you've never have you ever run a sales team no. have you ever missed quota <laughs> yeah <laughs> right you probably think the answer is fire them all uh what what what, what is your instinct to tell you or what would you guess you have to do um to reflect on, on everything i did or like um discuss about the the mistake they made yeah before i mean i think first of all give ashley a hand i think she nailed it like what <laughs> So, what, have, have, you, have you had folks from Procore here? No, you're the first interview. Uh, uh, okay. So there's a great leader at a local tech company, uh, Dennis Leanders, down in Carpinteria called Procore. And he says, well, look, there's a, there, we're winners or learners, mm. not losers. Mm. And like we miss, if we miss a target, we want to go into learning mode. Like what, why did we miss? What, wh- and look, the, first of all, like it's easy to be in sales when you're always hitting your number. But that typically doesn't last for long. And what, the, what Ashley asked is exactly what the CEO or my boss asked me. Hey, you missed the number. Like that's, that's a, at least a misdemeanor. If it happens a lot, it could be a felony. <laughs> um, but what I want to know is why and what's your plan? And this is hard because you, you, the first thing you have to figure out when it's a why is what did I not do that's in my control? I didn't do enough cold calls. Um, I put together a crummy demo for this client. Uh, what are the things in my control? And what I would say is that it's easy to say, well, we don't have enough leads. Marketing, our product sucks. Yep, totally. There's all these things that are outside of your control. Yep. Um, and But if you do that, you're making a big mistake. Um, how I want to treat it is, uh, as a sales leader, I want to say, look, nothing is perfect. My, I know my sales team. I know me as a leader. I'm not perfect. We're, I'm going to miss my number. Um, but I'm going to take care of my team first. And I know that like my, my house or my room is clean, that we're um, executing well. We are communicating with clients. We are being doctors mm-hmm. when we're trying to sell. Um, and if we do all that right, I might a- ask you for help in marketing or product or other areas, mm-hmm. but you've got to get really good at diagnosing your business um, and then accurately representing it to your boss. Now, I make it sound like there's no emotion here. Like, payroll is dependent on this in startups. Yep. John's raising money for companies, and people yep. give money, and they says, we're going to do a million dollars this year, and we don't do it, and people get really unhappy. And I think you have to realize an occupational hazard in sales is they ha- uh, just like... Invoca's engineers are debugging their code. When a CEO is debugging why they missed, they're going to be like, well, let's just get a new salesperson or a new VP of sales. So these jobs, um, we have a shorter shelf life typically. It's very rare. I I was at Salesforce for 16 years. I missed my number along the way, trust me. (laughs) But I was really probably, I hopefully, hopefully good enough to understand why and could I foreshadow it. Like this is a uh, really important. It happens differently with different bosses. Like, if I tell you I'm going to miss really early, on one hand, that's good news, right? Mm-hmm. On one hand, John's going to get mad at me. He's going to be like, Tony, you got a month to go. Why are you telling me you're going to miss? So you have to really understand the psychology of forecasting that, you're gonna, that it's going to be a rainy day and not sunny in Santa Barbara, uh, but that you're doing the things to minimize the gap. And, and, and I want to say this is an art. Like I've had bosses that fire people when that happens, but then it's going to be hard to recruit the next batch yeah. Um, you really have to become a good debugger of your business um, and understand why. And 
again, to summarize this, it's the things in your control that you do on your sales process, and there's things out of your control. But don't complain on the things out of your control until you feel like you've given it a 10 out of 10. Yep. On the yeah, great you answer. Thank All you. Right. Good question. Give Ashley a hand, everybody. Thank you. Good job. That was awesome. I, I would explain it to my team in different words, but it's very similar. And let's internalize our failures. Because, yeah. you know, you have the salesperson saying, hey, you know, hey, Tony, why didn't you close that? Oh, they are so stupid. They just didn't understand me. Like, oh, was it that they're stupid? Or was it yeah. maybe we could explain it differently? So let's think yeah. of it in those terms. Completely. That's yeah. part of the debugging of what yeah. happened. Yeah. Like, I think there's this view of you've got to. We've got to push. Like it's it's not like oh hey it's okay we'll live another month or two. Right. These jobs like this is payroll for the no, company. No, you're ringing these, the bell. These matter a yeah. lot. But so I I want what I, I I it's you have to thread this needle so tightly of if you go crazy all the time people don't pay attention yeah. and if you're too chill people are like wait that's not right either. Right. right. And um, generally I was probably slightly more on the chill than go crazy but then whenever I went crazy my team is like oh my god right. Something's like up. what's going on like <laughs> you never go off the handle like this yeah. we need to do this for you so that you know we we make yeah. payroll or yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I was like that too. I mean, I, I I probably was less, little less chill than you. But the startups, the highs are higher, the lows are lower. Completely. But still, I tr- I, I try to play the long game, and I try to not freak my team out. Like if I freaked out, then the team's going, "Oh my god, like, yeah, John's no, upset." No, no, you're, you're we, spot on. Like we should all be upset. Yeah. Well, look, and if you look nervous yeah. and crummy, that body language is yeah, yeah, yeah. shared by the team. Yeah, it's like a flight attendant when there's turbulence. Everyone looks at the flight attendant to see what he or she is doing, and they all are trained to just smile, even if inside they're going, oh, we're going down. Like, you know, like, but they're just smiling, going, oh. Yeah. And that's what you have to be. You have to be that flight attendant. Sometimes you just have to smile, even though yeah. you know things aren't good. So I, I know that you have um, – we have time for just a few more questions. We do have a lot of folks that are graduating here soon. We have a lot of people watching this um, all over the world um, that will benefit from this. What do you think – you mentioned about asking good questions. What do you think is the biggest professional mistake that students make right out of college? Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, – the biggest mistake I think we make – so in school, it's all about – your test and your grade. And if I, I'm going to exaggerate this. Is everybody okay? Give me a little creative license here. Just a little bit. It's all about being right or wrong. So your, your, your self-worth is like, am I right? And people get to work, and I've worked with people like this, and it's like, hey, this is, this is the right answer, and that's the wrong answer. And, and what happens in work is they're almost all some version of right or some version yep. of wrong. Now, look, if you're uh, doing liftoff for you know, a rocket you know, there's uh, there's some industries where there is an exact right, and everything else is Heart wrong. Heart surgery. Yeah, <laughs> but in general, like we're debating, like how, how should we make this website change? Yeah. What does it look like? And what what I feel like I if if I summarize my first stage of my career was I learned from a, a woman named Kathy Hessian, who told me, you know, my job, my life, it worked out a lot easier when I cared more about winning than uh, and let other people be right. And I think when you get out of school, you're so oriented on being right. You, you don't, we don't do a lot of group projects. Mm-hmm. In the group projects, we divide and conquer. We're not necessarily working together a lot. And yeah. work is about working together on, hey, what's the right way to make this change to the Invoca product from an engineer? And the minute you don't worry about being the one who is right and you're giving credit to others, and I'm just there to ma- And as long as we win, God, I don't care who is right. 
is the least I care about. Yep. Um, I think that's a, um, something that education misses as we get into the workplace. Again, with a caveat, look, you're a heart surgeon. Man, we, you, know, you got the valve fixed or you didn't. It wasn't like half fixed. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, yeah, I try I, to remind people of that too at work. It's like, dude, we're, we're not saving lives here. Like, you know, yeah. like take it down a notch. There's a, there, I forgot what company or where I read this, and they talk about decision making. Um, and they said there's really two types of decisions we make reversible decisions and irreversible decisions. Mm. And when we have a debate on a decision and what stuff we delegate and what stuff we don't delegate, it's, hey, if this thing is reversible, like, it's not going to, we're not going to go out of right. business on it. Like, why, like, what color the t shirt is and what we want to, like, hey, John, you guys go at it. Like, I want you to feel empowered on this. But the stuff that might be irreversible, like we do this and uh, the company, like there's a, we're, we decide we go on the AWS platform rather than this platform. I won't say it's irreversible, but it's a three-year project yeah. to move off. Right. Okay, let's think through the financial implications over the next seven or ten years of our revenue or profit if we have to pay AWS some percentage of compute power versus if we built it ourselves or ran it over on yep. Google Cloud or something. Yep. That that uh, that's reversible or irre uh, not almost irreversible. So those I want to spend more time on. Yeah, well, defining the problem, right? It's, it's half yeah. of the solution. So, and, and I would say prioritizing the problems, maybe the other quarter. Um, so I know you're a bit of a prankster. If you could quickly tell us about a prank you pulled on a security um, guard at one of your Dreamforce events. Damn. See, see, people have told me stories about you. We're recording this too. Okay, um, you can keep keep it no, no, PG. No, it's, it's totally cool. There's nothing that's not PG. Uh, let, uh, let me say something before. And I it's jump probably in. good to say this person was a police officer in real life. I know, I, I, yeah, not, no, I didn't pull the prank on the police officer. I co-opted the police officer. Oh, got it. Play a prank. Um, but let, let me say this: um, as you think about like a career. Uh, an important part about being a leader or, or anything in a career is, you know, people will ask, like, I work with these pre-IPO companies, and they're always asking, what happens after the IPO? And my answer is nothing. You have a bigger number. It's harder. <laughs> um, like, the, we're... I want to think of a pause. Work is like the quarter that becomes the next quarter and the next quarter. You're going to be having quarters the rest of your life. Um, and you have to get comfortable with that as the journey. Yep. And so part of the journey is celebrating the journey and making it fun. Yep. It's going to be really hard. We missed some numbers, as Ashley asked about. But I also need to make it enjoyable for people along the way. And sometimes enjoyable is being permission to like, have, make some practical jokes or make it funny. Um, you, don't want to, you don't want to do it like, if we're at the worst part of the business, you know, you, you want to time it a little bit. But um, the story I'll tell is I, at uh, Salesforce, we have a very large conference that takes over downtown San Francisco every year called Dreamforce. There are literally uh, no hotel rooms available for 60 miles from San Francisco yeah. for this. They close down streets and whatnot. And I'm in this really unique position. I'm in an industry uh, where there's not, it's in Silicon Valley, and I grew up in San Francisco. I'm a fourth generation San Franciscan. I went to high school in San Francisco, and none of my friends are in high tech. They are all plumbers, firemen, cops, lawyers, real estate agents. So I have this weird dual life in San Francisco where I could be with John Greathouse, you know, an investment user. No, and then a uh, fire truck goes by, and I, there's a honk, and it's like, hey, Tony. And it's like, hey, John, how you doing? Uh, so one of my best friends from high school is... Uh, on the police department and was in charge of the SWAT team mm. for San Francisco. And when uh, and he at Dreamforce was in charge of working with Salesforce's security department because at these big conferences, we have 
former presidents and others speaking in a conference hall. So the security, you know, you got the Secret Service there. We have Salesforce has a security department. We have San Francisco Police Department. Uh, after uh, uh, luminaries speak, they clear out the room. The police department checks everything. Uh, so one day I'm uh, walking down the street, and I run into my friend, Marty, the policeman, holding this I don't, giant gun. Uh, and flak vest and all this kind of leaning up, watching everybody on the wall. And I, so I stop up next to him. We start talking. And I said, hey, I thought, I thought you were running this. Why are you out here? He's like, oh, somebody's not available right now. And we start talking. And he says, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm liaisoning with a guy at your company named Chris. Do you, do you know him? And I said, yeah, I know Chris. And he said, well, at the end of the day, I have to call Chris and let him know if we, uh, that we cleared everything out. And I'm like, hey, Marty, would you help me pull a, a little prank on Chris? And he said, yeah, what do you want to do? So um, fast forward, like three hours, I'll, I'll tell you what happened in a minute, but about three hours later, I'm out at dinner with a client and a few Salesforce people, and I get this text from Chris. And it says, you know, I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'm going to get you back, payback, so you know what, I am um, so mad at you. And uh, so I you showed this. Worked. Oh, yeah, it was great. So... Um, Chris, uh, at, at the end of the day, at like 5.30 or 6, they cleared out the buildings, uh, and the San Francisco police cop calls up Chris, who's in a command center spot, and says to him, hey, Chris, it's police department, uh, just want to let you know we cleared everything out, everything's good, um, but I need your permission for us to release um, any other police presence here now that the day's out. And Chris says, yeah, sure, no problem. And the policeman says, oh, hey, Chris, one more thing. Uh, it wasn't on campus, but I heard on the radio today uh, that one of your executives got arrested today. And Chris is really like, who was it? And this cop says, you know, I don't, I, w- I, was just, I just heard it over on the radio, uh, Anthony, Anthony Rodney? <laughs> You know, my name is Tony Rodoni. So Chris says, Tony Rodoni? And the, the cop's like, yeah, yeah, that's his name. And uh, I mean, you don't know me well, but that's not what you'd expect. So <laughs> Chris is like, you've got to be kidding. Like, that can't be him. And he's like, yeah, no, it, it was him. Uh, actually, he was at um, a strip club. And they, were, they, they called him in. Like drunk and disorderly, <laughs> resisting arrest. He gave this list of things. And he said they actually had to carry him out. And he was screaming, like, do you know who I am? <laughs> I'm with Salesforce. And so Chris is in this room with people that work for him. Apparently slams his fist on the table. Damn, Tony. And he's like, holy, you know, I cannot believe this. And uh, Chris is like, wow, are you sure? And he's like, well, I, I'm I'm just telling you what I heard. And he said, oh, my God, uh, this is as bad as it gets. And then the policeman says, oh, uh, actually, there's one more thing. Oh, no. And Chris says, well, what was that one more thing? And he said, well, Tony and I went to high school together. We're just messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hence the text. Yes, yeah, so hence the text. Yeah, uh, so I, I wanted you to tell that story because 
I want, I want the students to realize you can have fun at work. You can, you can mess with people, you know, within bounds and within reasonable yeah. bounds, but it's not all a grind. Yeah. It's not, I mean, yeah. you have to be with these people a lot. You might as well enjoy right. being with them. You, you, um, and what I would say, on, I mean, this one's a pretty sensitive one, right? Um, this was a joke with me and Chris. It wasn't like in public. Right, right, right. It wasn't Chris Rock maybe on stage yes. a couple nights ago. Yeah. Right? So you kind of have to know. We like, just dated this but, episode. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but what, I, what I'd have you think about is like we'll do really fun stuff yeah. in the office that might be, um, it won't be as rough as what I just described with Chris yeah. because it's in a big setting. And right. I don't want to uh, belittle anybody uh, when we do this, but I also want to make it fun. So we would yep. do uh, fake newscasts. Okay, we're going to do our weekly thing. Nope, we're going to turn it into a newscast. Or uh, uh, if it was this week, I might turn it into the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. and we'll give some awards no to the reps for some of the funny people. And then we'd have somebody come back and slap us at the end. Or do. <laughs> but uh, make, you know, you have to celebrate the journey. Uh, if you think about yeah, the, totally. uh, I'll say on a negative way, when you're getting burned out, a career can feel like, a quarter that never ends. Yep. How, how, how attractive does that feel right now? Pretty unattractive. Yeah. Pushing the rock the up hand, the hill like, forever. Like, hey, wait, I'm a lifelong learner. We're always doing new things. Yep. Um, this is not a rinse and repeat. We have something new to learn yep. like every time we go through that quarter. And we're going to have a little fun along the way. But the art is figuring out how much of each of those to put in. And you know, if you, if you do it the wrong time, it could have a negative Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can send the wrong message. I could have done that with Chris, and there's a version that has me getting fired for. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can totally send the wrong message, and people are. I have a friend that did a practical joke at Chevron on April first, April Fool's Day, in his Mm. first year after college. Mm. He thought it was to his department, but it updated the computer to the whole company, and he was fired Mm. an hour later. Yikes! So. You know, you just... April Fool's. He forgot that he sent it out to the whole company and not just to the whole department. Wow. Um, But, you know, use your judgment. Yeah, be careful. Let's... let's, I want to end on this last question because this is something that's important to both of us. Um, And that's building diverse teams. I know that's something that you really worked hard at at Salesforce. What did you do and then what advice might you have for, you know, students um, when they're out there actually building diverse teams? Uh, Six months after I started my first job out of college... The VP came and said, Tony, we want you to go to Cal Poly and UCSB and recruit a couple engineers. And I said, are you kidding me? I've, I, I'm still just trying to learn this job. Why are you making me do this? <laughs> um, and he said, look, you can figure it out. Uh, you've been here. He's like, but he said, I have only one piece of advice for you. Whatever you do, don't hire you. And I said, well, I thought you want, don't you want more people like me? He's like, nope, we already got you. Um, so I don't want more of you. Mm-hmm. I want all the stuff you're not on mm-hmm. these teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, uh, that guy's name was Ron Burke. And it, was, it really helped me realize that whenever I had mistakes on recruiting or building out teams, I realized I've failed that advice I got six months after college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say the, thing, the, the most common way you get hires at companies is through referrals. What you say to your employees is, who do you know? And how do you get it? Like right. at Salesforce, 60% of our hiring came from referrals. Yep. So what, uh, but the unintended consequence of that is if you don't have a diverse team, uh, you don't end up with, uh, they, the people they recommend are all like them. Yep. So you just, you have to get it, you have to try to get it right from the beginning or really engineer it after a while. That, and I, I don't mean diversity, just gender or, ra- I mean, like point of view, style, mm-hmm. introvert, extrovert. Um, I want what I call a collective IQ on a team. And what I have to do is 
teach new leaders that not only am I going to measure them on yep. did you did we hire did we hit our number but how diverse is your team yep. and that diversity is measured differently in different areas like I would be in Japan working on diversity and you know there's not much racial diversity in Japan everybody I don't know if you've been there uh, so their diversity is well we're all from different prefectures mm. in Japan um, but uh, I opened an office in one Midwestern city and we hired a bunch of people and they referred all their friends and within six months I feel like I had a an extension of a frat house at a Big Ten college. Mm. Uh, by the way, the, the things they were good at, like over off the charts. The things mm. they were bad at, off the charts. But that tends to happen with non-diverse teams. Yeah. Right? They'll optimize on certain so, things. And then I tried to rec- fix it. Who wants to, who that's not like a Big Ten, whatever, frat thing, wants to join that group? I'll tell you, nobody. Yeah. Uh, so it, it took a long time yeah. to, to build that out. And mostly what it takes is recruiting with a long view in mind. If, I, if I'm trying to make a hire today, um, it, it's much different. But what I started doing with the leaders was be like, okay, you're in New York, you're in Chicago, I'm in what, L.A., wherever you're at. Uh, we're going to make... If we're going to make some hires over the next 18 months, yep. show me the people you're meeting with right now that we're talking to about an opening. You know, you and I met, probably the first email between us was four years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this, is, this doesn't happen fast. And so if you're going to recruit a, a, a diverse team, you, wanna, you, you have to do it over, with intention over a long period yeah. of time. I think being intentional and measuring diversity oh, yeah. under, an, I know in Voca, I, I was involved with Invoca for years. I know they've done a really, really good job. And Greg, yep. the CEO, they're mindful of it. They're not, it's not just a platitude. It's actually, yep. we're going to be mindful and we're going to measure it and we're going to help people that are hiring yeah. to understand what yeah. we mean when we say, let's make sure. Yeah. We there's so many conscious and unconscious biases. I mean, you'll oh, learn this if you go to work crazy. somewhere yep. and I'll give the most common one in sales is I, I had a boss I liked who loved, I like this person. We're going to hire him. He it was always, a he <laughs> came knocking on my door. They're showing so mm. much, uh, so much, um, interest in wanting to do mm-hmm. this. And I'll tell you like every psychological study will say, you put up a job description, a guy will have like 10% qualification and we'll be like, I got this nailed. Mm-hmm. Let me go in. I'm here. A woman, you know, not all women, but generally they have 70% of it nailed. They'll be like, oh, that last 30%, I probably shouldn't apply. Yeah. So whenever I had male leaders, I had to teach them, like, first of all, all you guys knocking, like 90% of you aren't even qualified for the job. Right. And of the ones that aren't coming to you, there's many people that are qualified. How are we doing going after that as a gender example? Yep. And that's, that's one example. It's similar with race uh, and other areas as yeah. well. 100% true. I, I interviewed a woman um, for this series that was helping women reenter the workforce, and she was making the very same point, that men, statistically, it's been proven that if they have one thing in the job qualifications, they're like, I got this. Yeah. Whereas women really are just, you know, they, yeah. they over-optimize on the other side. So her job was to try to get you know, women to realize you don't have to have everything, yeah. every qualification. Looking from a diversity standpoint, I, uh, first of all, all you guys, keep doing it. I'm okay with it. And women, don't change what you're like. It's my job as a leader to know that I'm not trying to reprogram how your brain works. I want your brain on that team so that when we're trying to solve a problem, you're going to come at it with a, uh, a perspective that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. I call that on a team, the, uh, the vocabulary somebody taught me is called the collective IQ. Mm. It's not like the IQ of you. or It's not about being right. It's how, what's a collective IQ of your team? Mm-hmm. And what, what blind spots does your team have? And the minute you think of that, like it becomes obvious what you don't have. Right, for sure. Tony, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Yeah, John, thanks, thanks for, for having me. Everybody, good luck. You 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.